please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll also find the text written on the back of the bulletin. This morning, we are going to complete the controversy in the temple, conflict in the temple, Jesus battling his opponents um, in Luke's Passion Week with conflict in the temple, part six. This is the final round in the conflict and fight. I'd like to begin our time by reading Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through chapter 21, verse 4. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put into two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord God, as we study this passage, um, help us to see the glories of your Son, Help us to see the evils of hypocritical and false religion. Help us to beware of this trap of the scribes. Help us to see the glory and the beauty in this widow's faithful gift. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, Take stone hearts and make them flesh. Speak life into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'll remind you where we've been. This section of Luke is Luke's Passion Week narrative. Jesus has entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. That was at the end of chapter 19. He cleansed the temple. And for all of chapters 20 and 21, which forms a literary unit called an inclusio, Jesus is teaching in the temple. You see that in 20 verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, indicating he was there many days. And then more specifically, at the end of chapter 21, and every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night, he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So in Luke's telling of the passion of the Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, this is how he spends Jesus' Passion Week. Jesus arrives on a Monday or a Tuesday and heralded by fanfare. And then he will be arrested and tried and crucified on Friday What does he do for that week in Jerusalem? This is what he does for that week in Jerusalem. He's in the temple, dawn till dusk, teaching the people. He has literally taken full and total possession of the temple in Jerusalem. And he is holding shop there. He is teaching. He has driven out the money changers. He has driven out those who sell. We saw that at the end of chapter 19. And while he is teaching the people, Luke recounts for us four episodes of conflict with Jesus' opponents and enemies in the temple. First, against the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders in verse 1. And they came to him and they tried to trap him. In these six episodes, three are initiated by Jesus' foes. Three are initiated by Jesus. So the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders come. And they ask him by what authority he is doing this. 
And Jesus asks them a counter question. So you tell me John's baptism, from man or from God? And these cowards and liars know that whatever answer they give will hurt them. So they say, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I'm not going to answer you either. And then Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants and the landowner whose son is killed, um, prophetically predicting his own death. And we saw in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So Jesus' response to their attempt to trap him is to condemn them, to depict them as as greedy um, tenants who murder the landowner's son. That's exactly what they'll do to him at the end of this week. Then the scribes try a more subtle route. The scribes and the chief priests hire or send spies pretending to be disciples. Now the thought being that perhaps if Jesus is caught unawares, doesn't see them coming, he may be falling to their trap. And they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar, hoping he'll speak against the Roman government and thus Rome and the, the governor will do for them what they've been unable to do for themselves so far, take out Jesus. And he, they marvel at his answer. I mean, Jesus is triumphant in every encounter. He doesn't just squeak by and win. Look, look at the end of this. Verse 26, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And Luke is showing us in the Passion Week, Jesus not just bests them, but he is absolutely triumphant. He is absolutely triumphant. They have nothing to say. Then the Sadducees, the liberal arm of Judaism, who say there is no resurrection. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in angels. They came in. They tried to trap him with a bogus question about a woman married to seven brothers. And Jesus deals with their bogus question. And he proves the resurrection by one verse in Exodus 6. In Exodus 3, 6. I'm sorry, about the burning bush where God says, I am, not I was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he silences them. And we see the, the result of that in verse 39 and 40. Some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. Jesus has so masterfully handled scripture that even those people trying to kill him have to say, that was, that was well done. In verse 40, they no longer dared to ask him any question. So there's been the three attempts by his opponents, but Jesus isn't done. He has battled the Pharisees in his entire ministry in Galilee and on his way to Jerusalem. The Pharisees drop out of Luke's narrative once Jesus enters Jerusalem. The scribes and the Sadducees and the chief priests take center stage. And Jesus will now turn his attention to the scribes. We saw last week when he challenges them in their, their interpretive understanding of Scripture and shows that they are wrong. They taught that the Messiah was only David's son or descendant, and meaning David was greater than the Messiah. And in one citation of one verse from Psalm 110, Jesus demonstrates publicly to the people, these self-appointed leaders do not accurately handle the scripture. I want to pause for a moment. In the ABF, it became clear there's some confusion. I have done an insufficient job of explaining who the scribes are. I want to just give you a little review from Luke. Let's talk about the various factions of the religion and the religious leaders in Israel of Jesus' day. We know the Pharisees were first introduced alongside of the scribes in Luke 5.17. You remember that's where the man was lowered through the roof. One of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. It doesn't say scribe, but just four verses later, the same group of people are referred to. The scribes and the Pharisees began questioning, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? So that's Luke's way of telling us the scribes are those who are teachers of the law. 
teachers of the law. A little later, they're referred to as lawyers. Luke 7.30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for them, not having been baptized by him. And in Luke 11.45 to 41, Jesus condemns them. And so it becomes clear then is the, the scribes are, are legal experts of the law of God. These are the seminary professors. These are the Greek and Hebrew exegetes of our day. It appears as though the Pharisees would implement the interpretations of the scribes, or the Sadducees would implement the interpretations of the scribes. But these were the ones who interpret Scripture, and Jesus actually challenges that to them in Luke 11. Turn to Luke 11. You'll see that. And this is important to understand. These are those who claim the right to interpret the text. In Luke 11, Jesus first blasts the Pharisees with a series of woes, starting in 42, woe to you, Pharisees, 43, woe to you, Pharisees, 44, woe to you. But the Pharisees and the scribes, or the lawyers, were closely enough associated that in 45, one of the lawyers answered him saying, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Jesus is just fine with that. He said, woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear. See, they're they're telling people what the text means. They're telling people what God requires of them. And so what's frightening in a sense is they are functioning in some ways similar to the function I'm doing right now. I'm attempting to, by God's spirit, help you see, us see, what God means, what God would have us do. So as we study the condemnation of the scribes, I take this particularly seriously because this is probably the closest identification to the ministry I do, the elders do, the leaders in the church do. They load people with heavy burdens, hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens of your finger. Woe to you if you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. They killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I'll send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now look at 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you take away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. And I think what he's saying there is the key of knowledge. They've claimed interpretive right This would be similar in Roman Catholicism to the church's claim in Rome that they, in their magisterium, they can interpret Scripture. They take the key of the Scripture. They take the key of knowledge, claim it for themselves, and they mishandle it. And so last week, Jesus, in his attack against the scribes, is twofold. First, he attacks their claim to be the interpreters of Scripture. And he demonstrates publicly that they do not accurately handle the text. I mean, think about the audacity. Jesus asked this rhetorical question in verse 41 of chapter 20 of Luke. He said to them, how can they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And presumably, given what we know from verse 40, no one answers him. So Jesus is in the temple surrounded by mobs of people and his disciples. We know the scribes are there, the priests are there. And he publicly asks this question and there is no answer. Silence. It's deafening. Israel's 
teachers of the law have nothing credible to say. And Jesus makes it clear he is the one to interpret God's word. He is the one who's going to handle it rightly. Your religious leaders, so-called, are not rightly interpreting the scripture. So he's unmasked that, but he's, that's not good enough. Let me read a quote from a commentator on this. It is not enough to indicate that the scribes or legal experts are inadequate as interpreters of scripture. Their failure to interpret scripture faithfully is bundled together with their failure to respond faithfully to scripture. Having silenced his opponents in public exchange, Jesus has gone on the offensive against them again. And the ultimate charge he can lay against them is their particular participation in behaviors and perpetuation of a system that victimizes widows counted among the weakest members of society whom both the law and the leadership were to protect. You see, mishandling of God's word is always accompanied by misliving God's word. It is possible to rightly interpret scripture and still not live it out. It is not possible to wrongly interpret scripture and live it out faithfully. And so his first attack is that their claim as lawyers of masters of the law, no, they're not handling property. They are misinterpreting the text. Moreover, they are hypocrites. They are greedy. They are proud. They are ruthless. Now he's going to attack their character and their practice. And so this morning we see Jesus unmasks the scribes' hypocrisy. And we would do well to take notice. Um, God, as far as I can tell, is angrier at nothing more than hypocritical, false, proud, self-righteous, ruthless religion. He's, He's... Angry at nobody more in the Gospels than these religious leaders. He'll talk to a Samaritan woman at the well, married to four men living with a fifth. He'll let a prostitute wipe his feet with her hair. But he is furious at Israel's would-be shepherds. And so we need to, we need to heed this warning. We wanna, he's going to describe for us the characteristics of the scribes. We should listen and examine ourselves lest we fall into these traps And he's going to give us another example, a positive example in chapter 21 of the widow. So let's begin by looking at Jesus' condemnation of the scribes. Jesus' condemnation of the scribes. And Luke gives us the the context here in verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. This is the type of thing Jesus does regularly. And Luke points out regularly. He's talking to one group, but he's talking loud enough and clearly enough that this other group gets to hear as well. So we've got specific counsel to the disciples. These are those people who've made some commitment to Jesus, some sense of recognizing him as their teacher. In that sense, that'd be a good match for us. I assume most people here call Jesus their Savior, their Lord. Okay, we're his disciples. And then the crowd, the people, are those who may become disciples or maybe are there to see the commotion. Who knows? But they're distinguished from his enemies. They're the ones who've been said earlier in Luke to hang on his every word. They are entranced by Jesus. And he gives this warning. And again, this is, this is audacious. He's in their home territory. He's in the temple. What they presumably rule and control. And publicly, in front of thousands of people in Jerusalem's capital, he says, beware. The scribes, not some of the scribes, just the scribes. And there were scribes associated with the Pharisees, and there were scribes associated with the Sadducees. He's just taken them, just one brush statement against all of them. Beware the scribes. Be on your guard. 
And so as Jesus' disciples, we need to beware of them. And I think there's two ways that we can beware of them. One, we want to observe them. We don't want to be fooled by them. We want to identify them in the world around us. We don't want them to teach us. Whoever the modern-day equivalent of the scribes would be, we don't want to follow them. The student, after all, becomes like the teacher. And so one use in this unmasking is that we can look around us, and we can identify and see, ooh, that looks kind of like the scribes. Shouldn't follow that person. But secondly, and even more important, and especially for me, as I've been preparing this week, this is the trap I can fall into. This is the trap we can fall into. We need to be aware of it for ourselves. we got to start making sure we're not loving the things they love, wanting the things they want. And so that's the, be- that's the warning. Beware of the scribes. Don't be fooled and led by them, and do not let yourself become one of them. And Jesus proceeds to tell us what to beware of. He gives us um, five characteristics of the scribes. Let's look at them one at a time. First, they desire the appearance of religion. They're said to like, literally in the Greek, to want, to desire, to walk around in long robes. And then we're told what they love. But first, they, they, love, they want to walk around these long robes. They, they like the accoutrements, the garb of religion. They like the way it looks on them. And in this sense, they've got it entirely backwards. God did um, teach his people that there would be certain clothes they would wear that would set them apart as peculiar people. But listen to Numbers 15.38 as for the purpose of the garb. Speak to the house of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. It shall be a tassel so that you will look really good in public. That's not what it says. So you can be on the cover of like, you know, HQ. No, Hebrew quarter. HQ. Uh-huh. Yeah, see what I did there? Okay. Okay, sorry. It shall be a tassel. For you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you're inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Whatever peculiar garb and, and, and tassels and things that God gave Israel and the priests to wear. They weren't meant to be stylish. They weren't meant to be suave and debonair. They were meant to remind people to be faithful to God and his word. So it's, it's ironic that they like them precisely for the appearance of the clothes, put on their priestly garments, put on their interpreter's robes, and be seen walking around them in public when it's precisely designed to humble them. For you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them. They like the appearance of religion. You know, um, it's one of the reasons I'm glad in our tradition, our, our pastors don't have priestly garbs. We don't have white collars. I'm glad that there are not any um, clothing and, and attire signs of office or function because it can be a trap. Not that it's inherently wicked, but it's so easy to, to begin to like the look the garb of religion. They liked it. Next, we're told what they loved. Not only do they like to walk around in long religious garbs, they love greetings in the marketplace. They love the celebrity 
of religion, the attention of religion. And these rabbis and these Torah scholars would be seen in public, and you can imagine the greetings and the, the loud vocal, oh, it's the celebrated Rabbi Hillel El. I can't finish making up a name, sorry. Um, they loved the celebrity of it. And, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with celebrity. Um, we are to honor those who are faithful leaders in our midst. First Thessalonians tells us to give them honor, and honor is correct. I just went to a big conference of pastors, and um, I got to you know, chat to my old um, seminary professor, John MacArthur, and that was a thrill, and, and Aidan Moore got his picture taken with him. But for someone like John MacArthur, it is a terrible snare if he begins to love that attention. I trust he does not. But there's a terrible snare there in loving the recognition. And loving, oh, it's pastor. You know, and that can be done from, from the congregant side legitimately and faithfully. But woe to me if I start liking that, hungering for that. Where can I go where someone will identify me and call me pastor? Like That's what the scribes do. They love that. They love the celebrity of religion. They love the celebrity of religion. Jesus actually warns his disciples the exact opposite. Rather than loving the applause and the praise and the, whoa, there you are. This is from the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your neighbor's evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And then verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you and greet you in the market. He doesn't say that, but that would fit right in there. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. We shouldn't be looking for approval and acceptance. We should expect rejection. We should expect that if we're faithfully handling God's word, it will cut and cure. It will offend and heal. They love the celebrity of religion. This is also similar um, to the Pharisees. They loved greetings in the marketplace, Luke eleven forty three. And what you see is even though whether you're on the religious left or the religious right of Jesus' day, the corruption is very similar. When you don't come to God's word faithfully to honor God, you start to love the things that religion can give. Paul warns about this in 1 Timothy. Okay, let's move on. They love greetings in the marketplaces. Next, they love the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They love the honor of religion. They love the appearance, the celebrity. Next, the honor. And it's not always the case. We're living in a day and age now where you're less likely to be honored if you're religious. But for much of America's history and many places in the world even today, there's an honor that can come for being religious, especially advanced in religion, a pastor, a teacher, a scholar, and consequently, when they'd gather at the assemblies, they would get the, the honored seats. And so they love the honor both religiously and socially. When you go to dinner at someone's house afterwards, you're given the seat of honor. They loved that. We've seen that already when Jesus goes to dinner at a Pharisee's house and he notices them jockeying for position at the table. They're consumed with honor and getting honor and maximizing the honor they get. They're not humbling themselves. They're proud Jesus again warns of that in 1814 of Luke. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector going up to pray, and the Pharisee lists off his accomplishments. The tax collector beats his breast and won't even lift his eyes to heaven. And Jesus concludes with this statement Everyone 
who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we, we need to watch out. I need to watch out from being offended when because we're faithful to Christ, it, it doesn't get us honor, to expect honor, to demand honor. And it's a snare and it's a trap. They love the honor of religion, both in the religious context and societally. And next we see they hunger for the riches of religion. See, up to this point, we've mainly seen their vanity and their pride. They, 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 they love religion because of the way it makes them look and the, the, the honor and the celebrity status and the attention and it looks good. Now we get to see the darker side. I mean, if, if we just stopped here, they're vain dandies. They're, they're proud, chasing around for the praise of man. But now we see the darker side. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. This is where you start to see the, the downside. They, they love money. Now, turning your Bibles to one of my favorite passages, um, Ezekiel 34. I think this is like the pastoral mandate here. What God loves and what God hates in shepherds, what he requires, his shepherding heart. You wonder why Jesus is so angry at these people. I think we see in Ezekiel 34 that. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. How terrible is it that shepherds tasked with preserving, protecting, cultivating sheep devour them? Exactly what Jesus is charging the scribes. Verse 4 The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food, food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand. That's why Jesus is angry. He loves his sheep. And these shepherds devour the flock. They feed on them, looking for what they can get from them. That's the heart of our God for his people, for his flock. And Jesus lays the accusation on here. And he picks widows because these are the most defenseless, the weakest people in the society. 
The ones who, again and again in the law, we see God's heart, God's compassion for the widow. We've seen that in Jesus as well. As he has ministered to and compassionate to widows. And so consequently, they're the easiest to pray. And rather than reflecting God's heart as God's representatives, rather than modeling his character with an equal concern for the widows and the poor and the outcast and the orphan, they devour them for their possessions, for their money. They devour widows' households. It's not sure exactly how they do that, whether it was some form of we'll take care of your property and manage it. I think we'll see one example just a few verses from now. These people are corrupt. They love the praise of man. They are proud and they are greedy and they are ruthless. So what if a few of those have to be devoured for us to become rich? Jesus is furious with these would-be self-appointed interpreters of the law who corrupt its meaning and corrupt the heart of God who cares for the widow and the orphan into devouring the widow and the orphan. That's the final part of their guilt. They make a pretense for long prayers. They pretend the piety of religion. Oh, they like to look sincere. Long prayers. How devout that man must be. He's been praying for 15 minutes. That's just incredible. Oh, here's a man who's trembling at God's word. Look at that long prayer. They do it for pretense. They want the honor and the praise, and they want to appear pious and sincere, and they can be good at it. Why do they deceive people? Jesus speaks of the Pharisee, the tax collector, and the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. And you could, you could translate the Greek there, prayed to himself. And what Jesus is not doing here is condemning long prayers. He's condemning, condemning self-righteous, pretentious, fake prayers for show. That's what he's condemning here. See, for them, it's all about the outward appearance. It's all about the externals. And all about the, the benefits, the celebrity status, the honor, the riches, and they just fake it, and through and through, they're hypocrites. So first, again, get this. First, before he attacks their character, these guys don't interpret the word of God rightly. Let me show you. They claim that they're the experts in the law. No, they're not. Now let me tell you what a bunch of jerks they are, how corrupt they are, how proud they are, how greedy they are, how ruthless they are, how hypocritical they are. And that then sets the, the turning point. Because thankfully, Jesus doesn't just condemn the... Oh, sorry, I skipped ahead. Next, we get to the judgment they'll receive. The judgment they'll receive. There's the summary statement. They will receive the greater condemnation. Why? Two things. They have ignored their responsibility. We saw in Ezekiel what the shepherds should do, what Torah scholars should be doing. They weren't doing it. They were going after their own gain. They were devouring the flock. And Jesus, earlier in Luke, gave us this example, talking about servants left over a master's house, and some would be faithful, but some might get drunk and beat the slaves. What would happen to them? Verse 45 and 46 of chapter 12, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, literally vivisect him, and put him with the unfaithful. Yeah, they've, they've, they've done exactly that. They've lived large and devoured the weak, the poor. And also, as leaders, they have a greater accountability. This is another fearful thing for taking leadership in the church. To whom much is given, much is required. And these men have the time and the leisure to study God's word day by day. You guys free me and Pastor Daniel up to study God's word, we're going to be accountable for more. James warns us that not many of you should be teachers, my brethren, knowing that those who teach will suffer a more severe judgment. It's not that teachers of God's word have a higher standard to live to. And some people think that that's what that means, as though normal Christians are held to this standard and you know, pastors and elders are held to this standard. Rather, we're all held to the same standard, which is Christ. But for those of us who would presume or dare to take leadership, when we fail, when we fail to obey, it is far worse for us. This is one of the teachings the Bible gives that judgment is in degrees. Hell will be terrible, but it'll be more terrible for some. Judgment will be worse for some. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day than for Capernaum. Those are the types of things Jesus says. It's degrees of judgment, degrees of punishment. And so they're guilty because they've ignored their responsibility and their judgment is more severe because they have greater accountability. Jesus, in that parable in Luke 12, goes on to say, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what was deserving of beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him whom they have entrusted, much shall demand the more. So, the scribes will be judged severely. They will pay. The scales will be balanced. Woe to them. And now our narrative hinges because we haven't just received the condemnation for the scribes. This would be a pretty negative message if that were the case. But thankfully, the Lord gives us the counterexample of the widow. Point two, Jesus' counterexample of the widow. And I'll read another quote from Green here. Crucial to the interpretation of this scene is the identification of its two main groups of characters, each of which functions here to symbolize opposing kinds of people. First, there are legal experts who Luke repeatedly casts in roles hostile to Jesus. And since they're interpreters of the law, their position among the people is pivotal. Luke presents them as persons of elevated status, alongside the leading priests in Jerusalem. So on one side, we've got the scribes. They are bigwigs in the community. They get greetings in the marketplaces. They get the best seats, the feasts. On the other side, on the opposite end of the scale of power and privilege, were widows, the weakest, most defenseless people in society, persons without any prospect of fending for themselves. You remember even the parable of the persistent widow, her only recourse is to plead with the judge for justice. Pivotal for this scene, then, is that those who interpret God's law on behalf of Israel and the temple system that was to be the embodiment of God's presence in Israel, those people are set in opposition to those on whose behalf God has expressed particular care. 
the people who would be the most prestigious, the most um, impressive socially, contrasted with the lowest. So now we're going to take a look at someone of low social standing. What can we learn here? The counterexample of the widow. And Luke depicts this as Jesus almost incidentally doing this. Jesus looked up. He's just finished speaking. And what does he see? He saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And Jesus, being an excellent preacher, a perfect preacher and teacher, uses this example to make the counterpoint. This is everything that's wrong in the scribes' religion. This is everything that's wicked and corrupt in their religion. Now let me show you something good. Let me show you something that pleases God. Now, two small copper coins, literally two lepta. I tried figuring out what this would be the equivalent of. A lepta is the smallest circulating currency in Roman world, and it was worth one one-hundredth of a denarius. And a denarius was a day's wage. So depending on how you calculate a day's wage, whether you'd use the average medium wage or whether you'd use minimum wage, you're going to end up with something between 10 and $20. I'd say it's probably more likely closer to 10 when you're two lepta would be somewhere between 10 and 20 dollars, probably closer to 10. So this widow is given, I don't know, roughly 10, 20 dollars, two lepta, a hundredth of what you could earn in a day. Two of those. And the rich were giving as well. And we know about this offering system set up in Nehemiah 12:44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contribution the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes to gather them in portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites according to fields and towns for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. So in the temple, this is one of the places you can pay your taxes and your tithes. It's commanded in the law. And so as we approach the high feast day of Passover, this widow is with these rich people. She's giving her contribution, $10, $20. And Jesus makes a remarkable statement about this. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So Jesus has just blasted the best religious examples they have. If you were to ask your average Jew in the crowd, who are the most religious, who are the most pleasing to Yahweh? I'm sure he'd list the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Jesus has one by one castigated them. Who would have the least social standing? Who would be the least impressive? A widow, an orphan. Jesus singles this woman out as a model of something positive. And so again, we have this upsetting. The mightier brought low, the lower lifted up commendation, from observation to condemnation, commendation, the widow's gift, we learn, is greater, not just than one of the rich person's gift, but all of it put together. I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. That is remarkable praise from our Lord. Why? Why is that the case? Certainly she hasn't given in more dollars and cents-wise. Jesus is not bad at math. He understands how this works. He's speaking about the value that God sees of the gift. You understand God isn't short of money. He wants us to give so that we can participate in his work. He wants us to give so we have an opportunity to show faithfulness and fidelity to him, not because he's hoping he'll finally get enough money to buy the things he wants to buy, to do the things he wants to do. 
So consequently, he can value our gifts differingly. And he's saying God values as greater this widow's gift than all that the rich gave together. God values that as a greater gift. It's remarkable. Why? Four reasons. First, she's given out of her poverty. She's given out of her poverty, literally out of her lack. God values our gifts, our service, whether it's financial or our time, becomes more valuable to him as it comes out of our, our lack, not out of our abundance. Now, Jesus is not condemning the gifts of the rich. He's not saying that these are bad things. It's simply a comparison. This is better than that. This is greater than that. She is given out of her poverty, which means, point two, she is given sacrificially. She is given sacrificially. You see, a rich person can give a large gift and still maintain their exact lifestyle. A person who's wealthy, and if you're living in America, given the global climate, you are one of the wealthy, almost certainly. Please don't think this is just the one percenters. I'm talking about wealth, like you have extra food. If you've ever been on a vacation, you're in that category, given most of the world. And so Jesus is pointing out the sacrifice in her giving. Her gift will certainly impact her life that week. She's given, literally, he says there, um, all she had to live on. This is a sacrificial gift. You know, David, when he buys the threshing floor for the Lord, insists on paying for it. He won't give the Lord a gift that costs him nothing. And as we consider our gifts to God and our gifts to his work, there is no New Testament command of an amount, but I would suggest to you that if you're not giving to the point where it affects your lifestyle, um, you're, you're probably not thinking through it properly. There's, there's no magic number, there's no magic formula, but again and again, God is pleased by what he's sounding good here is a gift that is sacrificial. Second, third, I mean, wow, I'm off of my numbers today. Third, she is given in humility. She's given in humility. And here's what I mean. This woman might be tempted to be ashamed of her gift. I talk to people, people of meager resources, meager gifts, and they can be ashamed, whether it's financial giving or service. Look at that person who can get all that done. Look at that person who gives so much. What possible good could my paltry $10 do? You're embarrassed to be seen. You know, the, the bucket's passing by and... You just put in $2 or whatever. It takes humility for her to walk up alongside of these rich people and publicly give. She's giving humbly. And, and fourth, she's giving in faith. She's giving in faith. It's a sacrificial gift. It's a humble gift. It's a faithful gift. Why do I say that? Because by giving all that she has, she is implicitly depending on God to supply her needs. I mean, she does, it's significant she has two lepta, not one, because how easy would the logic be to say, I'll give half of what I have, and I'll keep the other lepta back because I'll need something. She, she gives it to God. And again, this isn't a command that we all have to give every last penny, but it's simply showing that, that by contrast, whereas the scribes are greedy and devour Here's a widow giving sacrificially. Here's a widow giving not in pride but in humility, and she's giving in faith. God's pleased by it. Listen to Luke 16, uh, 10 through 13. One who is faithful in very little 
is also faithful in much. This woman who has not had much to be faithful with, but has she been faithful with it? You bet she has. You bet she has. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, how, who will entrust you with true riches? If you've not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? This, this widow has been faithful. She's doing it in faith, trusting that God will supply her needs. And the Lord of the universe notices her and points her out. I mean, what honor. God incarnate in flesh points out this poor widow giving a paltry $10. And for all the crowd to see, says she's given more in God's estimate than all these rich people combined. (laughs) Amazing. Which brings us finally to the principle. What do we learn from this? First, God's judgment differs from man's. God's judgment differs from from man's. And that's implicit in the contrast here. We've got those who are ostentatious, big wigs in the community, big robes, big greetings, seats at feasts, contrasted with a low widow. One God despises, the other God exalts and praises. God's judgment and evaluation of man differs from man's. Be careful who you're impressed by and by what you're impressed. Jesus says it clearly in Luke 16, 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God's not impressed by their long robes. God's not impressed by their long prayers. God's not impressed by their greetings. He is impressed by this widow. Second, God cares not about the appearance, but about the reality Of our religion and faith. God cares not about the appearance, but about the reality of our religion and faith. It doesn't matter what it looks like. You know, I'm pretty sure everyone coming to church on Sunday morning wants to make sure they look like they've got it together. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. I mean, you don't want to air your dirty laundry. But we, we want to make it look like we got it together. And so even though you're squabbling in the car here, everyone walks in, they're all, they got it, we got it together. And you got to keep it together till we get out. And you can, things can fall apart on the way home. That's meaningless. Now, that's meaningless. God doesn't pay attention to that. And the only reason we care about that is we don't care what God thinks. We care what each of us thinks. And I certainly don't want the moors to see my kids misbehaving, so hold it together, right? That's, that's meaningless. It's worthless. The appearance of religion doesn't matter at all. If appearance matter, these guys get A's. God cares about the reality, the real deal, the reality of our religion and faith. That's what God cares about. He looks at the heart, looks at the motives, and it's easy. To, it's easy. This is the danger. Danger for me. It is easy on a Sunday morning to appear faithful and religious. It is easy once a week to appear faithful and religious. It is hard to be faithful in religion. Which brings us to point three. God requires and is pleased by our faithfulness. You know, it's not about doing great things for God. It's not about how many people you win to the Lord. It's not about how much money you raise. It's, it's about being faithful. And God has gifted each of us with differing measures of gifts. And all that is required of a steward is faithfulness. I am absolutely convinced that there will be in heaven peace or people closer to the throne of God that none of us heard of. Faithful prayer warriors, faithful husbands, faithful wives, 
faithful with what God gave them. That's the measure on which we are judged. Not by how much God accomplished through us. Again, that's a temptation for me. Did the church grow while I was the pastor? Did uh, circulations go out larger? It's it's irrelevant. God God talked through a donkey before. He can do it again. He may be doing it now. (laughs) That's irrelevant. What matters is, is Jeremy Kidder faithful to what God's given him? That's the measure on which we're judged. That's the measure on which God weighs the scales. Faithfulness, fidelity. This widow has not been given much, but my goodness, she's faithful with it. That's what impresses God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up for a closing song. I'm going to read one final quote from Daryl Bach. In contrast to the leadership stands an almost unnoticed poor widow. She has the piety that pleases God. She gives her life in the little amount that she lays out for God. Her giving costs, so it is admirable. She serves from the heart and not to self-advantage. Others may devour widows, but this widow gives to God, despite needing to meet her own needs. For Luke's readers, the point here um, include not judging the poor prematurely since some of them are very faithful to God. Realize that appearances can be deceiving and that big gifts can come in small packages. God does not look at the number of the contributions we make or the amount contained within them, but at the way we make them. He does not count, he weighs. Love that line. God does not count, he weighs. So as we sing our final song, let us pray that we would be faithful, that God will give us the grace to be faithful to what he has given us. And remember that to whom much is given, much will be accounted.